Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host, and welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast show. We have an extraordinary guest with us today. I first met her in London about six or seven years ago. And Tally Sherritt is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and MIT. She is the founder and director of the Effective Brain Lab. She has written for outlets, including the New York Times, Time, the Washington Post, and she has been a repeated guest on CNN, NBC, MSNBC, and a presenter on the BBC, which we love the BBC. It's a great broadcast center and station. She served as an advisor for global companies and government projects. Her work has won her prestigious fellowships and prizes from the Wellcome Trust, the American Psychological Society, the British Psychological Society, and others. She is amazing. So welcome, Tally. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Oh, yeah. Same here. And I'd like to just tell you a little bit more about her before we have her come on. Her popular TED Talks have accumulated more than a dozen million views. And before becoming a neuroscientist, Tally worked in the financial industry. She is the author of the award-winning books, The Optimist Bias and The Influential Mind. She lives in Boston and London with her husband and children. She's going to be launching a book. It's coming up. And so this podcast will be just about the time the book's released. It's called Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. And that's co-authored by Cass Sunstein. And so let's just get into this. Uh, It's Dr. Tally Sherritt. Here we go. Tell us a little bit about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. Sure. So I have a bachelor's in psychology and economics. And in fact, at the time, I wanted to do brain science, but there wasn't really a bachelor's in brain science. So I kind of chose two related categories. Um, I then went on to do my PhD at NYU in cognitive neuroscience, which is kind of a combination of psychology and neuroscience. Did some postdocs and then ended up with a professor position at University College London. I study 
decision-making and emotion and how we process information and form beliefs using really a combination of methods from psychology, neuroscience, and also behavioral economics. Okay. Well, that's quite a background. So let's talk first of all about the optimist bias. How was that experience for you? And tell us just a one or two minute overview of the optimist bias. I love that book. Just kind of give us a little feel for what that is. And then we're going to jump into your latest book that's coming out. Sure. So the optimism bias, it's our tendency to overestimate the likelihood of experiencing positive events in our lives, like getting a promotion or having talented children and underestimate the likelihood of experiencing negative events in our lives, like getting divorced or being in an accident or being ill. For example, a survey that we conducted after the beginning of the pandemic showed that most people believed that they're less likely to get COVID than other people of the same age and gender. This optimism bias that we have, it's mostly about our own life and our own likelihoods. So we're not necessarily optimistic about public affairs. We actually call this private optimism, but public despair. People tend to be a little bit pessimistic about, you know, where the leaders are going, where the country is going. Partially is because we feel we have no control about these global issues, but we do have control, or at least we, we believe we have control more so than we do perhaps over our own life. And so we tend to think that we could steer the wheel in the right direction. And so we tend to be more optimistic about those issues. Is being optimistic a good thing versus being pessimistic? Yeah. So in general, optimism actually is correlated well with success in different domains. So success in business, in politics, in academia, in sports. One reason may be that if we believe our future is bright, then we put more effort into it right? It really increases our motivation. If you think, well, I'm not going to succeed. My company is not going to succeed. You put less effort into it and then it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so while our predictions can be overly optimistic, we tend to need that optimism to move forward. It's kind of like there's a saying, you have to expect gold in order to get silver. Otherwise you get nothing at all. Okay. Well, for our listeners, I love that book. It was really helpful for me. And thank you for writing that. So let's talk about Look Again. What inspired you to write Look Again and give us a little thought of what you're thinking about and what you hope to achieve with it? What's in the book? Yeah, so the book really started with this puzzle, which is that we all have some great things in our life. Maybe we have a wonderful relationship or a good job or a comfortable house. But it seems that those things do not impact our daily happiness as much as they should And at the same time, there are some terrible things around us, racism, sexism, cracks in our personal relationship, political problems. We also seem to kind of get used to them. So they're really not affecting us as much as you'd expect them to. We even sometimes don't notice them. And if you don't notice something, you don't need, you don't try to change them. And the question is, why is it? Why is it that we kind of over time don't notice the really wonderful things, but also over time don't want, don't notice the really terrible things. And it's not because humans are lazy or stupid. It's because of a fundamental feature of our brain that's called habituation. And habituation is our tendency to respond less and less and less to things that are constant or change very slowly. So for example, you enter a room full of smoke, you really smell the tobacco at first, but after about 20 minutes, studies show you can't smell it anymore. Or you jump into a pool, it's really cold, but after a while, you get used to it. And so just as we get used to tobacco and don't smell it anymore, we also get used to a new love 
into a divorce, to um, getting a promotion and to losing our job, to the smell of the ocean. And so our question with this book is beyond the why is it happening and the biological explanation, what can we do about it? How can we dishabituate, you know, in order to make what's freeling on Monday also freeling on Friday? What is devastating on Tuesday, not just become another thing on Friday, but something that we can actually notice and be more likely to change. Okay. Well, as you kind of think about this habituation, is it cousins with complacency? A little bit, or? Yeah, it is. I think what's interesting to us is that it is such a fundamental biological feature of our brain. We could kind of have really look at the neurons and see how we stop responding to things if they just don't change. And then going from this very basic feature, which you can actually even see in unicells, you can see it in, even in bacteria. And then saying, well, that thing, the same principle that you can see in all these animals that are, you know, we then see how it affects all aspects of our society. As you say, it complacency, but, you know, it, we have different chapters in, in the book about how it relates to risk adaptation, how it relates to lying escalation, how it relates to our ability to perceive climate change, how it relates to our ability to perceive misinformation. So this kind of fundamental aspect of our brain is affecting all parts of our life, our relationships, our way that we work. And so that's, I think, what we found so interesting and in how knowing about it can help us figure out ways to address these problems. Okay, that's a great overview. Thank you for responding to that. Now, you mentioned that, I love the way you put that, how do we make what is thrilling on Monday also thrilling on Friday, right? In other words, how do we combat habituation so that we can stay on top of things and be excited and see the things we should be seeing and life can be all that it's meant to be? So to answer this question, maybe I'll tell you a little story. So I was advising um, a big tourism company and they wanted to know what makes people happy on vacation. So we went to the resorts and we surveyed people. And the first thing we wanted to know is when are they the happiest on vacation? And what we found is that people were happiest 43 hours into the vacation. So they arrived to the resort within 43 hours is the peak of their happiness. And then it starts dwindling down, 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 down. It seems like it takes them about 43 hours to get settled, right? And really like enjoy the fun, but then it starts going down. It's not that they're not happy on day three, four, five, or eight, but they're less happy on three, four, five, and eight than on hour 43. And the second thing that we found is that when we asked people, what was the happiest bits? What are the bits that you remember and enjoy the most? The word that they use more often than any other word was the word first. The first view of the ocean, the first cocktail, the first dip in the pool. Firsts are new and exciting, and that's what made people the happiest. The second dip in the pool was nice, but it wasn't nice as the first. So really, one thing that this suggests is that what we want to do is create more firsts. And how can we create more firsts? We could break up experiences into bits, chop up your experiences. So for example, instead of taking one long vacation, you might take a few short vacations, right, of two or three days, a long weekend or so, if possible. Sometimes it's not possible because it's you're flying far away. But if possible, you want 
to chop up the bits. For example, there's a study, really interesting study that shows exactly that. So they asked people to listen to a piece of music. So think about, a, you know, a song that you really, really like. And then they said, okay, would you rather listen to the song from beginning to end continuously? Or would you rather have interruptions in the song? And everyone, 99% of people said, I want to listen continuously. I don't want any interruptions. But what they found is when they actually interrupted the song and broke it into sections, people enjoyed it more. And they were willing to pay double to listen to this music in concert. Why is that? If you listen to a song that you really enjoy, you enjoy it, right? But the enjoyment goes down with time. You habituate to it. But if I stop you and then start again, your joy goes up back, right? You dishabituate and then chop goes again and then joy goes back again. So it turns out that cutting experiences into bits, overall people enjoy them most, although they don't anticipate this. People are not aware of it. They did it with songs. They did it with massages. People enjoyed massages more when they were chopped up into bits than one continuous one. Again, people did not predict this to be true. It's very counterintuitive, but yet that's what they found. So I think one way to dishabituate so that we could feel the joy of things that are constant around us is to try to break them into bits. Now, you can also try to break up your own life, right? So we live our life and we have some good things, but we get used to them and we don't know, notice them anymore. But if we then take a break, we go away for a weekend, we go away for a business vacation, a, a business trip, and then we come back, what that tends to happen is things seem like they're re-sparkling. Suddenly when you get back home, things that you're just bored with or didn't even think about are suddenly like you are aware of them, right? And suddenly you appreciate them more. So taking breaks from our own life is another way to go. And then there's a related strategy, which is to diversify our lives. There's research showing that all else being equal, making changes actually increases your happiness. So there's a nice study by Stephen Levite that asked people to think about something that they want to change in their life. They wrote down what they wanted to change. It could be big or small. Maybe you want to change a relationship, a job, or maybe it could just like be the color of your kitchen. Then he said, okay, flip a coin. It was a virtual coin online. If you get heads, you take the change. If it's tails, you don't change. And he went back to these people two weeks later, six months later. First of all, he found that people did to some extent, go along with what the coin said. So if the coin said heads, they did change 25% more than if it said tails. And he found that all else being equal, those that did change were indeed happier. Now, of course, this is on average, right? It's just, it doesn't mean that everybody who changed was happier than not changing. But on average, what he found from that is that yes, change in and of itself makes you happier. And I think one of the reason is that a change causes us to pay attention again. Now things are different. So now we need to kind of pay attention and change is really the opposite of habituation. We habituate when things are the same, but if things are changing, we can't habituate, right? It's the kind of the opposite of it. So diversify your life. Now I'm, I'm not suggesting that we go up, uh, you know, leave our partner and go with someone else, but things like even taking a new course, right? Adopting a new skill. There's many studies showing that learning makes people the happiest. So in one study, people could gain money 
and also learn about the rules of the game. And what they found is, yes, people aren't happy when they gain money, but they were happiest when they learned something. So learning something new makes people happier than just like gaining material goods. Oh, there's so much I want to ask you about this, Tally. So for example, I would imagine from what you've been talking about that a habituation can be devastating in a relationship unless you break the cycle and it can become stale. And and so what have you found there and any recommendations of how to avoid that in a relationship? And then I have one more follow-up to that one. Yeah, so I am definitely not an expert in that, but for to answer that question, we relied on the research of Esther Perel, who's a well-known relationship expert. And Esther says that she found something really interesting. She found that people were most attracted to their partners in two instances. One, when they were away from the partner and then came back, took a break and then came back. And number two, when they saw the partner in a situation that they've never seen them before, for example, in a party talking to strangers or on stage doing uh, something. I think that kind of fits well with everything that I've talked about so far, that to dishabituate, what you need to do is take a break. And that's true. And we don't, again, we don't mean the break as in actual breaking up a relationship, but just going away. Perhaps it's an evening, perhaps it's a day, perhaps it's a weekend. And also just doing things a little bit different as, you know, because that's her second conclusion was when things are different, like you've never seen your partner in that exact environment, doing that exact thing. That's when people felt most attracted to the other person. Well, thank you for that perspective. That is excellent because it ties in perfectly, really, with what you just talked about in learning together. In other words, some of the very best relationships, now that we're talking about it, that I've seen, and one of them happened to be with us in our Harvard group in London when we met with you. They were there. They study together. They've been married 67 years. They're just getting ready to turn 90, both of them. They are on the go. They love to do things. They're changing up what they do. They've taken pottery classes. And I love that perspective. So go to a dance. (laughs) Uh, You know, have good variety in the relationship. And that's changing things up. So, okay, I've got a tough one for you. You may or may not know the answer to this one. Let's say that someone has a traumatic experience. Maybe they've been divorced once or twice, or maybe they've lost a spouse. Maybe because of they've been divorced once or twice, they might have habituation in not being able to go forward. I don't know if that fits. In other words, they're stuck. Does that make sense? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? And how do they get out of that? <laughs> So it's actually been shown that on average, of course, there'll be exceptions, but on average, while divorce does reduce your satisfaction from life and and happiness at the time of divorce, right? From that moment on, on average, people start going slowly, slowly, slowly back to their baseline happiness and well-being. And on average, within two years, people will get back to their baseline level of happiness. In fact, the whole if you think about the whole thing, it kind of looks like a like a U-shape. So, 2 years before divorce, the happiness starts going down probably cuz things are getting bad. It gets to the lowest point at the time of divorce 
And then it actually goes back up because people adapt. It's amazing what humans can adapt to, right? Divorce is just one example, but people adapt and get over much more traumatic experiences. We've seen this again and again and again. Think about the pandemic. World has changed within, you know, within a second. The world as we knew it at the time changed. And yes, stress went up, depression went up. But what we've seen is that According to some studies, within two months, it went almost back to what it was before because people just adapt. They get used to, you know, the new environment and they find new ways. Now, this is from a bird's eye view. What is important to know is that it's true on average, but you have individuals who have lots of uh, problems adapting. And these are often people who have a mental health history. So one example is people with depression or a history of depression they tend to adapt, but much slower. It takes them much longer. And sometimes they never get back to the level that they experienced before trauma. There's a great study by a professor called Aaron Heller at the University of Florida, where he he had students in the university who got grades for their final exam. And what he did is he asked them how they felt every 45 minutes for the rest of the day. And what he found is when people got bad grades, they felt bad. And that was true both for people with mental health history and without. And after they got the bad grades, slowly, 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 within, you know, long hours, they started feeling better and better and better. That was true both for people who are healthy and those with either depression or history of depression. But what he found was that those with depression, while they did feel better over time, it happened way slower. And so really one of the signatures of many different conditions that are related to mental health is actually a problem in adaptation or habituation. It has different flavors. In in depression, it tends to be emotional adaptation, right? It's slower. But in other conditions, for example, in schizophrenia, in schizophrenia, it's been shown that they tend to habituate to sound slower. So, you know, if you have like an AC in the background, we usually, after a while, you won't hear it. Only when I turn it off, you suddenly like, whew, I feel better and I didn't even realize it. It turns out that people with schizophrenia, they don't do that that well. They don't filter out the noise like we do. And it's harder for them to adapt and habituate. Okay, thank you for that answer. Now, you said something that's fascinating to me in referring to the habituation and dishonesty. Can you go into that a little bit and the impact that has? Because that is really quite a revelation and something that people need to be aware of. Yeah. And in fact, that was one of the major triggers for for the book, because it's a study that I conducted with my colleagues that was published back in 2016. The title of the paper is The Brain Adapts to to Dishonesty. You may like anecdotally, when you think about the great uh, fraud stories of our time, we usually kind of the, the narrative is it started small and it became bigger and bigger and bigger. Even we have a quote by Bernie Mardoff and he says something like, you know, at the beginning you take just a little bit, then you take more and more and more. And the more you take, and here's the, the important part, the more comfortable you feel about it. And so anecdotally, this feels true. We did actual experiments to see what's going on. And what we did is we brought people into our lab in twos they played a game and in that game, they could cheat. We didn't tell them to cheat, but if they wanted to, they probably realized they could. And if they did, they could benefit their own income at the expense of the other person. 
what we found was at the beginning, they just lied by a little bit, by a few cents. And then after a few minutes, by more and more, and then a few dollars and more and more and more. So lying really escalated over time. And not only did they play the game, we also recorded their brain activity while they did this. And what we found was at the beginning when they lied, there was a strong activity in the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain. And so beginning when they lied, even if it was by a little bit, they felt bad about it. But the activity of the amygdala went down over time. It habituated, right? And that's normal. We know that, that the amygdala's activity response to anything will just go down over time if it's constant, if it's frequent. And so now there was less of an emotional response to your own lying. So nothing stopped you from doing so. Because normally what stops us from lying, it's this bad feeling, the guilt, the like, you know, but if we, if I take away the bad feeling from you, there will be not much stopping you from lying. So you lie more and more and more. And basically we showed that we could predict by looking at the amygdala's activity going down, we could predict how much more you would lie on the next trial. That really was some the first study. And in fact, funny enough, the, the paper was published in October 2016. So just a few months before the presidential election of 2016, at which, you know, that time it was all about lying and so on. So you can imagine that was really taken up by all the journals. Um, and it became quite well known because it happened to be published at that time. And so really the answer to that to combat habituation in being dishonest is to nip it in the bud and not even tolerate small dishonesties. In other words, draw a line and say, I'm not tolerating this at all. Right, right. So we really need to call out the small lies because what our studies show is that the small lies can become bigger and bigger and bigger. So whether it is in the work environment with with your employees, even if it's sometimes it's just small things like, okay, someone it seems like they cheated on their expenses by a few bucks. But if we let that slide, they kind of get comfortable with it and it can become bigger and bigger and bigger. And the same thing with, I think, children, right? You do want to call out these small ones so that there will be an emotional reaction, right? One thing that happened in our study is there was no punishment. They just lied. But if you punish, then you're kind of resetting the emotional reaction, right? You're causing people to dishabituate because you're saying, no, 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 this is not okay. Wow, I'm so glad you covered that. Thank you. Well, I'm always amazed how fast these podcasts go. We're at the end of our show. It's been a delight to have you with us. So before we sign off today, what tips would you like to leave with our listeners? Any final tips that would really be helpful for them as they think about this? The big message is trying something new, right? I mean, it's kind of a well-known thing to say, but I think we talk a lot about why that's true, why variety and diversity of experiences is really beneficial for your happiness and also for your creativity. I don't know, we didn't have time to talk about that, but if someone gets a book, there's a whole chapter about creativity and it also shows that trying new things and diversifying your life also enhances the likelihood of coming up with creative solutions. Mm, Okay. What do you talk about in creativity? Yeah. So what has been shown is that people who tend to habituate slower tend to be more creative. You can measure how fast people habituate. For example, I can 
have a sound go again, you know, repeated sound, boom, boom, boom. And I can measure your response physiologically using something called skin conductance response, for example. So it's been shown that people who habituate slower, meaning they continue responding to things that are constant, they tend to be more creative. There's a study conducted by a professor at Harvard where she showed that people who are very creative, meaning they had a patent under the name, they had an exhibition of their art shown, they wrote a book. Those are people who habituate slower. And the question is why? And we think the reason is when you are not habituating fast, that means there's less of a filter, right? Information comes in and you know, you notice the sound, you notice the, the, you know, the visuals, thoughts, like all the information is not filtered as much. And this can be distracting and I'm sure it is. But at the same time, it creates this mishmash of information in your mind, lots of, you know, things going on. And sometimes, and mostly it's not important information, mundane, boring information, but sometimes one piece of boring mundane information collides with this other piece of boring mundane information in your mind because there's less filter and it can create this novel idea. In fact, we know that a lot of novels, novel ideas come because you took a piece of information from one domain that's really not interesting and another piece of information from another domain on its own, really not interesting, but they happen to mishmash together and create this kind of new solution. Oh, I love it. And I love the name of your book. Look again, because it's really placed right into what you were just talking about, which is really being alert and hungry and curious and not just lulling into inactivity and not being interested in things. And love your comment about learning and seeing new things and, and changing things up. That's a great strategy. And so with that, it's been a delight to have you. How can people find out about this and what you're doing? By the time this is out, I think Luke again would probably be available everywhere, Amazon stores and so on. And my research can be found on the Affective Brain Lab website, Affective with A as in affect, as an emotion. So there you can find all our academic papers, but also articles for lay people, um, videos, podcasts, audio, and so on. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Tally Sherritt, for joining us today. It is so fun to see you again. You keep coming out with these dynamite subjects and research that you're doing that's so helpful as we are working, all of us, on becoming our best. And what you're talking about now really helps people become the very best that they can be. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And wishing you all the best in your work. And to all of our listeners, wherever you may be in the world, thank you for joining us today. It's such a privilege to have you with us. You are a total inspiration. You're here because you want to be. You're trying to be better yourself and, and do exactly what uh, Dr. Sherritt was talking about today. So thank you for joining us. We wish you the best today and always. This is Steve Schallenberger signing off. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly P-Performance Coaching Program, 
or how to get certified as a trainer or coach or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.